Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from Kahan Games. And I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions. All right, man, what what do we got to talk about today? Well, I wanted to briefly touch on, so some of these intro topics have sort of either come out of the blue or sort of felt incomplete, at least to me, because uh, they're, they're large topics, and so... Our purpose has sort of been to try to broach some subjects so that way we can sort of get a common level of discourse and we can talk about things and have have that sort of base of knowledge. Uh, so last week's especially, I didn't quite feel like we did a ton of justice to it, but it's such a huge topic. We got to start somewhere. Same with programming, but, you know, everybody starts at the bottom, so it's a little easier to, to begin there. But, uh, yeah, on the whole, uh, we're just sort of introducing things and now we can sort of move back and forth now that we've touched on programming gaming uh, collecting and you know, there's probably more avenues to to enter the scene from but those are the big ones at least for me i don't think people mind that we don't get super in depth with these things i mean i think i think we give people a lot of things to think about well i guess i just want to say like uh that's not all we'll be back for more <laughs> more talk about these things uh, so yes. if you have questions related to them or if you want to hear more about something please write in and we will return to them sooner than later absolutely yeah we usually get uh whenever people write in we usually get the questions in the very ne- next episode so don't uh don't wait if you have a draft written sitting in your gmail somewhere just hit send we want to read it so when beginning a project, there's there's a lot of different avenues you can sort of approach it from, but two big ones that I find sort of uh, that contrast with each other are choosing a project because it's uh, a creative project, something you feel that you're able to express yourself versus sort of a technical challenge. Uh, there's something you want to figure out and there's something you want to do, and so you build a project around that. Kevin's a good one to talk to because he has done sort of a combination of both. And with every project, every project is creative in a sense, and every project is technical in a sense, but it's which direction does that lean? Which one are you pursuing more than the other? Often, anyways, sometimes they're, you know, they run equal. But on the whole, I personally, I found that projects can go one of those two directions, uh, either determining them or as you work on them. Yeah, I feel that um, a lot of times if I decide I want to work on a specific game for creative reasons and I run into some sort of technical roadblock, I will then think of another project that I can sort of pursue to work out that technical situation so I can understand it better. So um, I think mostly... I I start leaning to projects for creativity reasons, but I will have side projects, you know, with with this technical stuff that I need to work out. Um, and and also I think that uh, in inside every project, I try to. It might not be obvious to the person playing it, but I I try to at least include some sort of technical achievement, um, just for my own sort of personal, you know personal triumph (laughs) yeah well a self-achievement yeah achievement unlocked so you've done a lot of ports though and those to me would seem to be more technical versus uh creative well what do you think i joke i joke a lot of the time that 
I'm not a very creative person um, because I think a lot of the times that I've decided to do these, you know, arcade ports, it's been simply for the fact that I love the game and I want to bring the game to my favorite system. But just with any programmer, I don't think any programmer right away can know immediately how to tackle every scenario they're going to come in in contact with. So you, you're definitely forced to, uh, to start thinking technically. Cause a lot of times, like when I decided to do Frogger, I, I didn't stop to think about, Oh, I'm going to have to learn how to do Sprite zero splits to, to you know, to, to scroll the different rows, different, you know, directions. I just thought, Oh, I want to do Frogger. Let's start it. And then down the road, I was like, Oh crap, wait, uh, I don't know how to do this. So it's, it's something that I don't always stop to think about ahead of time. I just think I want to do this project and I start it and then I just deal with the problems as they arise, technically. Well, what's been the difference for you between like porting Frogger and making the incident? Well, what's great about doing ports, and I know you don't care for ports much, but... Well, it's um, debatable. <laughs> I think what's great about doing a port is you don't have to stop and consider different gameplay like facets. It's it's all already done. So you just simply need to figure out how to do, you know, each idea that's already been put into this game. So I I don't think you have to stress or or think, you know, quite as deeply. It's it's simply, oh, this is what I have to tackle. Okay, this is how I'm gonna do it. Okay, on to the next step. Whereas, you know, with the incident you have to stop and try to think of a compelling, you know, story to intrigue people. And how am I going to convey that through, you know, gameplay? Because on the NES, you know, how much text can you really berate the player with? So you have to sort of trickle in different things to keep a player engaged while at the same time, you know, trying to flex your programming prowess with, you know, trying to do creative things, you know, even simply with a title screen, you know, fading in different parts of the title screen using, you know, different attribute tables. There, there are different ways that, that you can be creative just to sort of, I don't really know what I'd call it in a, in a programming, you know, perspective, but I know as a musician, you know, back when I was in marching band and stuff like that, when, when a musician would sort of, go off script a little bit and just doing do things you know for his own sort of personal enjoyment we would call it musical masturbation um because to the <laughs> player the player's not going to know that you know doing this little attribute trick is hard but to you you get some self satisfaction out of it oh, I, I guess so yeah that that'll, <laughs> that'll do it huh and so with uh, something like unicorn though that is a good Actually, that's a really good combination of both. You have a very technical thing you're trying to figure out with it, with uh, the internet connectivity and the the interactions back and forth. And then you've also been creative in the sense of building a world that was based on sort of a graphicless world, correct? Yeah, it was an old BBS game, uh, Legend of the Red Dragon, um, strictly text. I think when modems were getting a little bit faster, like maybe up to 14.4, uh, they they came out with a version of the game with some ANSI graphics. But yeah, it was definitely uh, strictly text-based. Um, and what, what sucks about Unicorn, it doesn't suck, but 
we've talked about it for so long and, and I've been sort of trying to figure it out for so many years that I feel that, you know, it's, it's built up now and people are looking forward to it. And I'm worried that when it finally comes out, since it is based on such a, I won't say small because it is some in-depth gameplay, but I think people might have a chance of being let down. And that's a really big fear of mine. Well, there's still though that you have to have a game that gets this tech sort of to completion to, for it to be able to be improved upon with later games. Yeah. And I, I don't think people realize that with the NES, um, the NES is so, so slow. It's such a slow system that you can't have a lot of real-time online sort of connectivity. You know, you could probably do something like chess to where, you know, there's there's time between, you know, data transfers. Yeah, you don't play RPGs and strategy RPGs. My people will be very happy. <laughs> well, when you think of online games today, you think of Call of Duty when, you know, all these things are happening at once and, and the NES just isn't capable of anything like that. So I think people, when they start seeing online games coming out, they're really going to have to sort of shift their perspective of what makes a good online experience, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, w- it will be interesting to see. I guess I haven't really played any online games ever so it's all it's all theory for me of what well, would you be. did just get your first hd tv too so you're slowly crawling into this century hey i now have a computer from like 2013 thanks to you and aaron <laughs> ah, good stuff but what about you like do you do you typically seek out projects more for creative purposes or for technical challenges well in the beginning uh i chose projects based off of wanting to figure out specific gameplay things. But right away almost, right after I'd sort of seen the limits of adventure and what it would take to make it a direct port and just that those parts didn't interest me because they didn't get to my larger project of a Zelda-like, I, I moved very quickly into just doing creative things. Like I was basically building worlds, enemies, uh, screens, all of that uh, within you know, like three or four months, and I I played around with that for quite some time, uh, but it was very uh, a creatively driven project with, with not a lot of technical... The technical challenges were met as I needed to to get to the creative part, right. not the other way around. But when I went to go do Family Vacation, which is also unreleased, <laughs> it, uh, it was very much driven by a technical thing. I had this idea of like, if I made something that was like the Oregon Trail, it was going to operate on this larger counter-based system, and it was just going to basically spin through this thread of things every, you know, frame, and it would check different things. I had this sort of like neat technical idea with how the game would be based, and I just programmed based on that. Like, I really cared very little for the uh, creative aspect. I just chose a road trip and, you know, standard locations and didn't really, you know, go too much beyond that. But I had a lot of fun with that part. But the base of it was all sort of this technical problem that I wanted to solve. Yeah, I remember you talking about that uh, that big counter loop spool thing. And there was some glitch you walked into that you couldn't figure out for a while where something wasn't 
it was like one more than it should have been or something. I don't remember. Everything was one more than it should have been because I was confusing which order things were happening. But uh, yeah, as uh, far as the game engine and NMI. Yeah, my game engine was built to where it looked like in the code, it looked like NMI was occurring after the main loop. And so I was programming based on that. So everything was one off. And then I ended up hitting this huge bug and... And then at that point, I wasn't able to program for a while. I had to have some surgery and stuff, and I got this idea for another technical challenge, which was to use a Virtual Boy controller on the NES. So you had no game in mind when you decided to do this? You just said, you know, it'd be cool making this Virtual Boy controller work on the NES. Well, with that, it was like, okay, I've got this controller. What kind of game can I make that uses this to its fullest? And (laughs) Robotron, of course, came to mind, and... Uh, we had just played it at, at MAGFest, and I yes. actually, I mean, the idea for it had started probably about a year before, but that period of convalescence, I just sat there and was like, well, if I did enemies this way, and I did screens this way, and I had it all like planned out, so when I actually sat down to program, it only took like three weeks to do the majority of the game, but the whole reason that game exists is because of a technical challenge as well, and not a creative one. Which is uh, kind of odd since I really just want to do creative projects, and yet I've done now these two technical ones as my main <laughs> main things. Yeah. It seems like technical stuff is where your brain sort of gravitates to. Um, In my, as a friend who knows you decently well, it seems like you're always putting exhaustive thought into various topics. So it seems like technical sort of challenges would be right up your alley. It's funny though, because I'm not a technical person at all. I, I lean more towards the the you know the humanities and creativity and you know building worlds and things. But I get hung up on these little technical things, and they just fascinate me to no end. <laughs> Can't put them down to uh, save my life. I love that duality because you you analyze things like from so many angles. To me, it, it just seems that your brain is is made for technical stuff well that's the joy of this whole topic is that every project is a little bit of both and it's just where you're leaning overall and then where you're leaning day to day i guess overall i want to lean towards creative but day to day i tend to get wrapped up in the technical because i yeah i do find it easier it's much easier to confront a technical problem than it is to confront sort of a creative problem yeah i think you're right because you know for technical problems there's going to be an answer for everything but creatively, you have to really figure out what's going to be best, you know, for the project. And then you have to start taking in players' perceptions and expectations into account. And it just becomes this whole mess. Well, it's it's easy to, you know, say, I want to make uh, the the character jump. Okay, I can do that. You know, even if it took a week, at least at the end of that, I have them jumping and moving just the way I want. But with a like, you know, designing a whole level that works and feels good. Like, oh, that's daunting. (laughs) Yeah, and it makes all the difference. Like, a good feeling game. I mean, if the game doesn't feel good, I'm not going to want to play it at all. I will give up after a couple minutes and and move on. Yeah, so, I mean, games fall on both of those uh, two aspects. It just, just depends. So this is kind of a broad topic, and it's you know just Kevin and I sitting here chatting about you know creative versus technical uh, things. I'm actually going to start a thread on the Nintendo Age forums if anybody wants to jump in and contribute their thoughts or 
uh, whatnot. So we encourage you to you know be a part of that discussion if you want to be. So we got a game to talk about this week. Uh, it's a good one, I think. W- which one are we talking about, Bo? Remind me. <laughs> Jeez, that's that's rough. <laughs> um, we are talking about Alter Ego. Yes, and this was my pick, so I definitely knew what game we were talking about. For the record, well, we, I gotta I gotta let them pick some of the games, uh, which yeah, I think you, you know, took. They let me out of my cage once in a while. You took that pick back like a couple days ago, and you're like, I don't know if this is a good one. And I was like, No, no, we found a bunch of stuff. It's a good one. Alter Ego. It's it's a puzzle game, but it's like a. It's like a platformy kind of puzzle game. You don't control when he jumps or anything, but you can climb ladders to get to different levels. And the way it works is you are a character and you have an alter ego that moves exactly opposite the direction that you do. And you have to sort of acquire these little pellets. Do, do, do they have names? Gems? Pellets? Uh, I was just going to say bouncing boxes. Pellets is much better. <laughs> so yeah you have to acquire these pellets um and some are one color that you have to touch and some are a different color that your alter ego has to touch um but you know it, it's such an amazing game that i've wanted to cover it for such a long time but after i played it and started thinking about you know what we could say about it i thought man what can i really say other than man it's an awesome puzzle game <laughs> well there's actually a lot that can be said about it yeah. well i'm excited because if, if anyone can you can so let's get into this game yeah we'll see <laughs> so alter ego came out in 2011 it was a port of a homebrew game for the zx spectrum which was a british microcomputer uh from the you know the 80s early 90s uh, it sort of had a long run it was very popular over there in the UK, taught a lot of people how to program and got a lot of series and programmers started uh, with their careers. But the port for the NES, it was done by Shiru. Uh, the music was done by a fellow named Kulor. Kulor? Kulor. <laughs> we'll find out shortly. We eh? will find out shortly. <laughs> and one of the other notable things about Alter Ego is that it was completely written in C. Well, not completely written in C. It was written in C with with some assembly. And at the time, back in 2011, it was one of the first games that was released that was mostly written in C, which was quite an achievement and sort of shocked a lot of people, even those people that you know really knew what they were doing. So hang on a second. The ZX Spectrum game came out in 2011 and the NES port came out in 2011? Yeah, and also uh, Shiru is a Russian fellow and then the Denis uh, Grachev, he's also, <laughs> I believe, a Russian fellow as well. Ah, okay. What excites me most about this is that it's a homebrew port of a homebrew. I, I can't get over that. That's awesome. But yeah, it's pretty neat. Like, it was somebody making a game that was inspired by other people making games for old platforms currently Uh, you don't see that too often yeah and shiru he's always been such like his games always feel so polished to me i love you know when he puts out a new project because i always get really excited he's good at programming he's good at music so i'm actually surprised that he didn't do the the, do the music for this game because i think in all, all of his previous projects he's been the one to do the music well, yeah, he's known around the forums uh, for releasing Alter Ego, uh, Landmaster, Lawnmower. Uh, he's done... Zooming Secretary. Ooh, Secretary, that was a big one. Uh, yeah. He's done some work for greeting carts and with their Blow em Out, Beer Slinger, and Perfect Pair. 
He's done some other projects where you don't always see his name, but he was the one doing all the programming. And plus, I, I want to you know, briefly say that music in any of my games, music and sound effects would not be possible if it weren't for his sound engine, Famitone. Um, he put out a sound engine you know, for different homebrew programmers to use, and he made the process of you know, composing music and exporting it to a specific format and importing it into a project way easier than ever before. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, he's done some other cool uh, tools as well. The screen tools, his, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I use that in all my projects too. I just used it today the for NES, the first time. It was awesome. NES screen tool. It's designed to uh, to basically draw full screen graphics for the Nintendo, and it keeps all the you know, constraints and rules, uh, inherent. So you can't, you can't screw it up. You know, when you go to export it, it will work in an NES game. Yeah. So he was really, he's really kind of a master at what he does. Uh, he chose this project specifically because he just wanted to make a port. He didn't want to mess around with, uh, any of the uh, gameplay, like coming up with ideas or anything like that. He wanted to see how fast he could do it. And he wanted to do it in C as much as possible. And he did it fast, didn't he? Did you say 10 days? Yeah, 10 days. Um, oh my god. I mean, by the time the music programmer got back to him, he was pretty much done with it. <laughs> it's insane, man. He's just such a brilliant guy. He really is. And and it's another one of those cases where you set yourself a challenge, you sort of complete it, and you prove to yourself and to other people that you can do what you set out to do. Well, Shiru, point taken. Yeah, uh, it's like 3,500 lines of code, and that's it. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's a... In C, though, right? In C, it's about a 1,000 lines are assembly, a 1,000 lines are for the Famitone, the music engine, and then about 1,500 lines of C code, yeah. Wow, that sounds pretty efficient. I, I don't know how to program in C, so I don't really know you know, how to compare it, but that seems really efficient to me. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, back then and even now, a lot of people have said that really like a full C game cannot be done. It's just too inefficient. There's too many bugs and debugging and all of that. But, and that's one of the reasons why he set out to do it was because he could and, well, it could be done. And since then, the I think the Mojon twins are the ones that are probably most known for doing uh, larger games in C. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, Quest Forge, of course, I think was mostly done in the city. Oh, yeah. Man, we need to get to that episode. I would guess November. That game excites me. <laughs> so, yeah, the game itself is it's interesting because the, it, you know, it is the port of a ZX Spectrum game. And the ZX Spectrum, like the NES, was very defined by uh, the available colors it could have on screen at once. If you look through images of uh, Spectrum games, you'll see just lots of bright colors and very few colors on the screen, and they they made do with those. A lot of like the ultimate play of the game games where they were isometric, they they had very few colors, but things like Alter Ego, the Spectrum version, actually has very bright, uh, distinct colors. It's It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I didn't actually get to look at it until just before we started recording, but uh, it it actually looks really, really good. I I don't know much about ZX Spectrum, but I have seen enough now to where I'm really intrigued. Um, it seems like it has a lot of similarities with the NES as far as the limitations and uh, and just how it looks. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it has a very active homebrew scene as well. 
has for years. And, you know, because with those British computers, they had a large bedroom coding scene even back in the 80s. You know, anybody could make a game. Anybody could try to get something published by one of the major publishing houses. So uh, what do you find? Do you find the graphics to be good, bad? What do you think, Kevin? I think they are super charming. Um, that is the word I anything that Shiru, Yeah, anything that Shiru does, it seems... It, it always just looks so polished. And the, the graphics, while being you know minimalist, you can tell that's obviously you know the style that he was going for um and of course you know it, it being a port of a different homebrew um having looked at the other one he 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 stayed true to you know to what the original looked like um but yeah i think it looks great he did he had to sort of restructure the levels uh, he kept the basic like goal and challenge of them but because of the NES attribute tables and, and you know, the tile-based system, he had to sort of redo things. But he really, like, went above and beyond and made some a beautiful-looking world in the game. And it, like a lot of homebrews, it uses smaller sprites, a little 8x8 uh, sprites. Or they might be just a little taller than 8 tall. But uh, on the whole, that's been sort of a trend among a lot of homebrew efforts is to use those smaller sprites. Because you can have more things going on on screen at once, and we also have better TVs than... You know, they were shooting for back in the 80s, especially with the HD, AVS, and all that. Like, you can really see all those individual pixels. And you, having said that he did this in 10 days, does that include drawing all the graphics? Ah, As far as I know. (sighs) I hate how talented he is. Well, uh, yeah, (laughs) he is extremely talented. But yeah, he, his initial plan was just to sort of like convert them, but then he ended up having to redraw them all. Yeah, which is super impressive because there's like five worlds, there's different styles of things going on, different bricks and whatnot. And different music. So as far as music for Alter Ego goes, Shiru had sort of farmed this out to another fellow. It goes by Qlor, Rich Armijo, and we are going to sort of chat with him about uh, the music. Uh, We've One of our goals with these talks has been to not just talk to programmers but to talk to you know all the members that have contributed to projects because you know you end up humming that tune in your head or recognizing those graphics those were not necessarily done by the guy who put put the whole thing together so uh rich you there hey how's it going hey not bad yourself doing all right also it's pronounced cooler <laughs> cooler did i <laughs> really get that it wrong starting it yep. out right yeah oh, well, I butchered it like four times already, so... I love <laughs> that good. you butchered his screen name, but not his last name. I was really focused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you did the music for Alter Ego, correct? Yes, that is correct. Have you... Sort of, how did you get started doing chiptunes? Well, I mean, I guess... Okay, so it it kind of goes back to... I don't know why, but... When I first started making music, I always kind of wanted to make, you know, NES music, basically, uh, or rather chiptunes. I didn't really know that they were called anything specific, but ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to make music for my NES. Uh, so when I first started composing music, uh, geez, I must have been maybe like 14 years old, something like that. Uh, I was just making I was just making like midis, right? And um I very quickly got into the habit of just making midis using just one instrument, which to my ears was kind of like a eight bit sounding sound. 
Um, and that was sort of how I got started with that, with that sort of stuff was just faking it with MIDI's, um, right about 2006, I discovered a program called raster Atari tracker, which, uh, if you are unaware is actually a, uh, windows based cross platform tracker for the, uh, Atari, uh, eight bit computer series. Uh-huh. Uh, it lets you use the pokey sound chip, which is a little bit better than the one in the 2600. It's still, you know, kind of detuned. It's still got that sort of <laughs> distinctive Atari sound, but, um, yeah, that was, that was sort of what got me into it starting out. It, it was definitely a learning process. Uh, I think I sat there with that tracker for about two hours before I was able to get it to produce sound, but you know, persistence and practice and that sort of thing. Yeah. There's a bit of a learning curve with, uh, with trackers. <laughs> yeah, there definitely is. Once you get used to them though, it's really intuitive. Like, I don't know. I, I find trackers almost to be my, my preferred method of transcribing music these days. And it's funny because as a kid, when I was playing the 2600, um, you know, I, I had no idea how out of tune, um, you know, the audio was, but, but going back and when I was porting, I, I ported sneak and peek from the 2600 over to the NES. Oh, um, cool. and I went back to listen to the, the title screen music from sneak and peek and those high notes are just so <laughs> out of tune. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, incidentally today marks the 40th anniversary of the Atari 2600. Uh, oh. I thought you were going to say sneak and peek. I was going to get oh. really <laughs> No. <laughs> Nobody celebrates that. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, what was the process like for Alter Ego? Did, did you use sort of stuff that you had on the back burner or did you compose all new music? No, uh, it had to be basically from scratch. So Alter Ego, to me, to me, Alter Ego is a little bit tragic because it's, while it is the thing that I am probably most well known for, uh, the process behind it was incredibly foreign to me at the time because so I had been writing NES music using Famitracker for probably almost five years at that point. So I was, I was pretty familiar with it. Making music for an NES game <laughs> is a rather different process than making music for just the NES. Yes. Uh, because of course, you know, you have the limitations of the, of the sound chip and all that, but you also have uh, the limitations of the music engine Yep. which not very many people talk about or even are aware of. Um, so Famitracker's built-in engine is definitely made for making music, right? Like it's very uh, versatile. It's got a lot of effects. Uh, you can make really fancy sounds with it. The Famitone engine, which is the engine that Shiru wrote, I believe specific, like I, I'm pretty sure he wrote it and beta tested it with Alter Ego. So it was kind of the first time it was ever used, but it's a much more limited engine. So writing the music to that game was a process of working within the limitations of his engine for one, squeezing everything into a very limited amount of RAM for two, and trying to make it sound good. Yeah, Famitone, the first Famitone didn't even allow for volume envelopes, right? Like you, you had to program the volume into the instrument itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I actually was unaware that Famitone had that. <laughs> like I, I've made actually three games now with the Famitone engine. I've uh, scored three great three games rather, and um, I still don't use volume commands. I actually don't know if anybody 
that I've scored games for has been using newer versions. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the very, very first version of Famitone that I was using was uh, pretty limited even compared to just later versions. Cause there's no, you don't get an effects column for one. You don't get a volume column for two. You had a limit of theoretically, it was supposed to be 32 instruments. I think only 31 of them actually work. So if you oh. <laughs> tried to play something in the, on the 32nd instrument, it would just crash or something. So I ended up having to uh, take out one of my instruments, which was kind of difficult. Plus, there's a limitation in like the range of the notes, right? You couldn't yes. have anything in octave zero or octave seven. Yeah, yeah. You had to watch uh, how low your notes go, which <laughs> usually usually it's not that big of an issue. Um, the only time when it kind of becomes noticeable is if you're trying to do bass lines on one of the uh, square waves. Because yeah. they're, they're naturally tuned an octave higher than the triangle. Mm-hmm. So it kind of chops out some of your absolute lowest notes on the square waves. Sorry, Bo, I didn't mean to nerd out musically with this guy. That's but... okay. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know anything about music. I hardly even know how to get it into the game, other than thanks to Shearer's uh, excellent documentation. But Kevin actually <laughs> knows what he's talking about. So you guys can have the adult conversation, and I'll just ask the uh, kitty questions over here. <laughs> Uh, what was the pr- sort of process like for working? I mean, who approached who in the situation here? You know, I was trying to think about that, and I honestly don't remember. I think it was C. Jeff that proposed to Shiru that I do the music for that game, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Maybe Shiru, because Shiru and I knew each other from uh, 8-Bit Collective, oh. and it's possible he just he just reached out randomly. But I honestly, I don't remember how he reached out. But basically part of the reason why I say it was so tragic was not just me working within these new limitations that I wasn't used to, but also the workflow of how, like how I had to write this uh, soundtrack because he basically reached out to me and he was like, Hey, do you want to do music for an NES game? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, that's, that sounds (laughs) awesome. Uh, and he was like, okay, you've got a week and nine kilobytes to work with. Oh, God. <laughs> and yeah, uh, so that was, it, it was a process of writing basically a track a day. I, I had to sit down in the morning and basically jot out whatever was on my mind at that time and try to make it work, which anybody who knows me knows that I'm not really someone who writes things quickly. So that was kind of a foreign part of the process to me as well. Fortunately, subsequent uh, soundtracks, I've been able to uh, take my time a little bit more. Did he give you any sort of guidelines as to like what he was looking for musically? Or did he just give you those number of bytes that he had available and let you go to town? Uh, well, he definitely gave me guidelines on what he wasn't looking for musically. Um, basically, I wrote out, I think the first track I wrote out It was either level one or the title theme. I think it was the title theme. Uh, So I wrote that out. I sent it to him. I was like, does does this style seem okay? And he was like, yeah, keep going with that. And uh, so I did level one. He was like, yeah, this sounds great. Uh, I did the level two track. Now, if you've listened to the OST, you'll see that there's two different versions of level two. Well, that's because the first version of the level two track was maybe a little, a little too prog for him <laughs> basically it was in nine eights time 
very kind of ambient sort of thing. But it, yeah. Um, yeah, he 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 came back to me and said, "I don't like this at all. This is horrible." <laughs> if you, you keep... inspi- you inspired by Rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he yeah he he basically told me he wasn't going to use that one, and um, so I had to do a different track, and uh, it, it sort of became this this sort of frustrating thing of him kind of dangling the fact that he could just write the music himself over my head. Yeah. Uh, while trying to get me to do what he wanted. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's what's surprising to me because I, I didn't even know that he, he didn't do the music for this game until, you know, just a couple days ago because yeah. he had made such amazing music in all of his other games. So um, I was actually surprised that he just didn't do it himself, but I guess he didn't want to do it all this time. Yeah, uh, it may have been a time constraint thing. Like he was trying to put this thing together really quickly, I guess, to showcase. Because if I recall correctly, that was one of the first games written in some kind of C library or something. Yes. Yeah. And so I think he wanted to show off how quickly you could develop a game with his new library. So I I think he had a lot on his plate. And that's probably the only reason he wanted to... uh, you know, kind of push it aside on onto somebody else. Did you have a chance to to play the original or the the NES version or the original ZX Spectrum game while you were sort of composing? Uh, yes, I before I started playing it, I, I played the Spectrum version, and um, I I listened to the title music and I was like, yeah, no, this isn't. I'm not going to use this <laughs> at all. Uh, not that it's bad; it's just not really my style, you know. But yeah, I, I did get a chance to play it, and that's sort of where I got the idea to kind of go with more thoughtful sort of puzzle game type music that's not really in your face or anything until, uh, until of course, later in the game when, you know, the puzzles are getting harder and then you want the music to be a little less monotonous, so you kind of speed things up a bit, uh, which is not a direction that Shiru really approved of at first, but I kind of just said, well, deal with it and... You did so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, to the people that aren't as familiar with your work, what other what other games have you worked on? Well, I can't really fault anyone for not being familiar with my other works, uh, my other game soundtrack works, because I have completely failed to uh, promote them in any meaningful way. But um, Alter Ego was the very first game that I scored. Uh, after that, I scored Carlos Michelis Four. For the ZX Spectrum, uh, the oh. 128, I scored uh, Super Painter by uh, Denis Groshev for the NES. And then uh, most recently, actually just starting, I think beginning of this year, I uh, scored Nebs and Debs for the NES, which was uh, second place on the, uh, what is that, NES Dev. They do like a, a competition. Yes, they do. We're actually interviewing uh, the person who puts that on in the same episode. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, and Chris has done. Chris did the art for the game that I'm just coming out with now, and has been doing some other art for me as well, which is uh, it's interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, the Nebs and Debs guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he farmed out music to you. I've farmed out art to him. He's. It's just the the way that things move around in the community is very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, he he farmed out art to uh, a separate pixel artist recently, if I recall. Did he really? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you. I mean, 
people want to work on what they want to work on. And if, if it's easier for them to farm out stuff, then uh, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, yeah I, guess true. I guess I just start <laughs> for another game that's not my own. So that does make sense. <laughs> so do you offer your services to, you know, potential NES programmers out there? Like how, how would uh, they go about getting in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love to score uh, homebrew retro stuff. The only real condition is it has to be actual retro homebrew. Like if you come up to me trying to make a 8-bit style Unity game, uh, probably not going to happen. But yeah, just, you know, people can get a hold of me at uh, uh, through my Twitter, through uh, email, Facebook, whatever. Probably not Facebook. Facebook has a tendency to uh, kind of make messages vanish. For Yeah, if they're not your friends. Yeah. <laughs> Goes into your other inbox. One other thing that I was going to ask was uh, what sort of musically, what what games influenced you when you started composing your own stuff? Oh, uh, I know it's a small question. So, so just, <laughs> yeah. So uh, just in general, I guess uh, I was really, I, I've, I've kind of been inspired by a few different, well, a few different people, obviously. Uh, my, my biggest favorites are, uh, Soyo Oka. Uh, she's the one that did the soundtrack to uh, games like Pilot Wings, Super oh. Nintendo, uh, Super Mario Kart. She did a bunch of Famicom games that nobody knows about that are fantastic. Uh, oh, SimCity as well. Yeah, uh, she's just got a really great kind of grasp on harmony. And uh, that's I've always kind of been drawn to that. Um, another person that has been a big inspiration to me is, of course, uh, Tim Fallen. Oh, yeah. He's, you know, it, pretty much anybody that knows chip tunes knows who Tim Fallon is. He's a guy who who's managed to make basically every sound chip sing. So it's kind of a big inspiration to me. That was part of the, uh, I guess, part of my thing is I like to make music on basically every sound chip possible. I sort of got started with that by listening to Tim Fallon and like listening to his techniques and trying to copy them on different sound chips. So yeah, m- mostly those two. Uh, for Alter Ego specifically, it was kind of a different direction that I had to go in. I think for that game, I was I was really inspired by a lot of early NES stuff, kind of like Wrecking Crew or like, uh, not coming to mind here, stuff like Bomberman, stuff like uh, Donkey Kong, you know, the really, the really simplistic kind of NES jingles is more what inspired me for that game because I knew I was going to have to do simpler stuff given that I had way less RAM or way less ROM to uh, work with. It seems like you were, you know, in the sort of chiptune scene pretty early on, but how did you get introduced to the world of homebrews? Like, were you aware of, you know, these games that were being made, um, you know, by people like us or did you just sort of, did they contact you? I really wasn't aware. Well, I was aware of it. I didn't really have an in. I think my first, I think really Alter Ego is where it started because I, you know, of course scored that game. And then um, every subsequent person who's gotten a hold of me has basically been like, hey, I really like Alter Ego. Do you want to score a game for me? And I've been like, yeah, okay. The exception would be uh, Carlos McKellis 4. I was actually introduced to that guy through C. Jeff, the guy who runs Ubiquitune. 
and the music world is just like completely foreign to me. I have no clue who any of these people <laughs> are. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Ubiquitune, um, so it's a place where a lot of, I guess, our little circle of musicians have released uh, soundtracks and, uh, you know, uh, EPs through and that sort of stuff. Chris got a hold of me because he heard Alter Ego. I've had my, I, I actually had an Atari 2600 track that I did thrown into, uh, oh, what is that game? Star Castle Arcade, which is available on Atari Age. Oh, cool. yeah. And that guy. I think we saw that in Portland last year. Oh, neat. Yeah. It's really, it's a really cool game. Uh, that guy got a hold of me because he had heard my stuff on Battle of the Bits. Um, so it's just, just kind of everywhere. I guess the sort of the last thing that I would be curious about was sort of what's your, do you have any final reflections on your experience of working on Alter Ego or? Yeah, after I did Alter Ego, I actually, uh, I actually redid the soundtrack for the Windows phone port. So uh, that's part of the official soundtrack release is I've got like two different versions. I've got the classic and then the enhanced version. Uh, what the enhanced version is, is basically I took the songs and completely remixed them in Famitracker using the VRC6 expansion chip and then mixed it in stereo and other such fanciness and then rendered it out for use in that. But it was it was kind of funny because a guy, uh, Dennis Groshev, made that port and uh, originally he just wanted to use the NES versions of those songs and I, I kind of like just straight up told him like, nah, <laughs> here you go. Have, have some enhanced versions instead. Oh, wow. Nice. So we want to feature a song from alter ego. Do you have one that you'd prefer that we use? Probably the level three track. Do you have anything you want to say about the level three track? It's what I, it, it's what I call star bounce music. It's like, it was a genre that I was really into at that time. And um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's my favorite track, my personal favorite from that soundtrack, I suppose. Awesome. Okay. Well, here is the level three music. And thanks so much for coming on, Rich. It was it was good talking to you. Good meeting you. And hopefully we hear some more from you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
So like a lot of homebrews, the alter ego has nice little like level names, which I I find sort of neat. Uh, Kevin did that with the incident, and then Rob did that with mm. uh, the Mad Wizard. Mad Wizard, yeah. I don't know, I just I sort of like how a lot of people have have taken to doing that. It's it's kind of neat. Yeah, I did uh, name the the levels in the incident different names. I think I think what it does it it gives them it gives the game a really good personality, um, and I like to try to think like with the mad wizard i would try to look at the name of you know what he named the screen and i would try to figure out how like how it relates to the name and a lot of times you know it's something goofy like he'll name it two goblins because there's two goblins and a lot of times you know like i would name uh, a puzzle just something that it you know when when you look at it like one of those magic eye you know uh things you know, if you squint at these blocks a certain way, what does it look like? And I would just name it that. But uh, a lot of times, you know, people name things a little bit, you know, for clever reasons. So it's fun to try to figure that out. Well, I liked the alter ego ones because they, they, some of them almost gave you hints or they kind of teased you in different ways. Like, hey, you're getting close, I think is the second to last level. And <laughs> even the final level, when I finally got there, it was like final chamber, and I was like, "Is he just messing with me, or is it actually <laughs> like the one final of those chamber? games where the final boss isn't the final boss?" Yeah, bubble bobble, where you got to play the whole <laughs> game again. Ugh. Uh, um, did he did he name this? Did he use the same names from the ZX Spectrum version? Yeah, as far as I can tell, the the names are the same. Uh, they're placed a little differently on the screen in sort of a more visually appealing way as he sort of reorganized the levels. But yeah, they're all there. Cool. So the game itself, do you find... Are you a puzzle game fan, Kevin? Well, I know that can be debated. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> puzzle games are... Other than maybe point-and-click uh, games, they are my favorite. I mean, it, it takes a special puzzle game to really pull me in. Um, you know, games like Tetris, you know, like block games like that, they're fun, but I, I don't really get super involved. But but games that have sort of a progression of uh, difficulty as far as levels go, um, I, I can definitely easily get drawn into them. Were you drawn into Alter Ego? Oh, yeah. Um, the the graphics, like we mentioned, the charming graphics right away pulled me in. But I think mechanically, um, it's just a really interesting concept. You know, you're you're controlling two sort of characters at the same time, and you have to be aware spatially of where you are and because it only gives you a limited version a limited number of times that you can switch back and forth to which one you're controlling um you really have to a lot of times think a level through before you even start playing it or you'll have to uh lose a life and and start over that was one of the things I did like about it. You always started in a safe place. You you didn't have to move immediately in order to avoid death. You you were in sort of off away from that, and you could sort of observe things and decide whether you want to go right or left first, or uh, or which how you wanted to sort of form your strategy. Right, you weren't in harm's way, but there were levels where you would start on like a vine that will disappear as soon as you walk on it. So if you start walking without thinking it through first, you might have already screwed yourself. Yeah, and the the puzzles have, have a fair amount of misdirection where, you know, they, they sort of make you think you should do something, but you really shouldn't, and I, I enjoyed that aspect. There were only two enemies, surprisingly enough, and no real projectiles to avoid, uh, but they were put together in such a way that, that it was always interesting and always fun. Yeah, I think that he, 
you know, of course it's a port, so maybe it's not a decision that he consciously made, but um, the person who made the original game, you could tell that he he wanted it to be more of a puzzle game and less of a, like an action puzzle game. You know, he, he wanted you to be able to stop and think about something, which, which I appreciate. The only thing that I, I found a bit puzzling, we'll say, <laughs> uh, <laughs> was that some of the... That levels... should not be that funny, I'm sorry. I know it should. Um, was that some of the levels you ended up with... So you can only swap back and forth, you know, so many times, but some of the levels you'd end up with, like, four swaps that you never ended up using, and it was like, well, did I do something wrong, or was it poorly designed, or... Yeah, I I thought the same thing. So that's good to know that I wasn't the only one because on on a lot of the puzzles, you know, you can only get one or two switches and you have to, you know, plan it out and coordinate it very well and do it perfectly. And then on others where you would think that you would only have a certain amount, you have, you know, tons. And I, yeah, like you said, I, I don't know if that was on purpose or not. When I was playing, I was sort of puzzled by it, but, uh, you know, afterwards it was sort of nice that I didn't have to make every single move perfect, and there there was a decent margin of error built into a lot of the levels. Not yeah, every level. Yeah, because but... you, uh, you get five lives for the whole game, right? Yeah, I think at one point I was up to six, but maybe it was just five. I was so busy, so focused on, on playing through. It's tough, especially with only five lives, it's really tough. Well, I found myself dying mostly on the levels that required excessive amounts of patience. You're waiting for the skulls to kind of like move back and forth so you can get up to a ladder. And like there was a way to do it where you used swaps and there was a way to do it without using any swaps. And I tended to opt for not using swaps and going through. And that 16 pixels level, that one just takes forever. But after that, it's it's <laughs> kind of easy, easy going. Oh, is that the one where you have to switch and then fall and then yeah. go to a different column and switch and fall? Oh, yeah, yeah, the four ladders. Uh, just takes forever to clear through that, and you have to do it perfect because that one you don't have any extra lives on. Right. So, is it good? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever feature a game. Well, maybe we will that we don't enjoy. But uh, this game, <laughs> you know, it, it was my choice, um, but I picked it for a good reason. I really, really do love it. Um, and I think that his games do get a bit of attention, so so people know that the stuff he puts out is quality. But when when people look at puzzle games, I think sometimes that they don't necessarily take them seriously as far as like interesting, enjoyable, worthwhile gameplay. And I, I think this game really nails it. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the only thing that I thought it suffered from was. It was short. I mean, you can beat the whole thing in 15 to 20 minutes if you, you know, give it a couple playthroughs. And also just the replayability. I'm sure I'll go back to it at some point and I'll enjoy it, but the puzzles are still going to be the same. And, you know, if, if there'd been either more puzzles or uh, something like that, then it would have really helped it along. But Yeah, I think with, uh, game, like with the incident when I put 120 levels in, like that... In theory, if, if there were a smaller amount of levels, there wouldn't be a lot of replayability. But with uh, with there being so many levels in that game, there's it's impossible to really memorize them all. But in a game like Alter Ego that has a fewer amount of levels, I, I think it would be harder to, to forget how to solve each puzzle. So yeah, the replayability def definitely suffers. Yeah, and I, I, I did get a sort of lucky on a few of the last levels where I sort of accidentally made it all the way through. I was like, oh, shoot, okay, didn't waste a <laughs> life there. And I'm sure I'd get tripped up on those again. But on the whole, uh, just it, it'd be good to have a little more variety with it. All right, so you love it and I love it. If someone else wanted to check it out, 
where could they pick up a copy? Well, Alter Ego is interesting, uh, you know, besides all these other things like being programmed in C, being a homebrew port of a homebrew, um, sort of a collaborative effort among other people. It's also interesting in that it was released for free and never got sort of a real retail release. Uh, you might want to check if, if you've downloaded some ROMs or whatnot. I think it's been distributed that way. Like, it gets thrown in these, these packs, and people end up with it on their computer, don't even know it's there. And when we were talking about, you know, ROM distribution last week versus uh, physical production, it's been downloaded off ROMhacking.net almost 2,500 times. That's pretty good for getting a game out into the wild where, you know, people have to go and sort of find it and download it. And yeah, I mean, for such a niche thing that we're doing with homebrews, I mean, if if you were to say that 2,500 people played one of my games, I would be, well, first I'd call you a liar, but then I'd, like, I'd be <laughs> ecstatic. So, yeah, I, I'm sure that's a number that most of us can only dream of. So I'm glad that it's getting so much exposure. Yeah, so it can be downloaded on romhacking.net. It can be found various other places around the interwebs. And if you backed the Mojon Twins uh, Verkami campaign, or I think two Verkami campaigns ago, which is a sort of a Spanish Kickstarter thing. They had two of their games, and if you supported them, they were going to give you a third surprise game, but they didn't tell you what it was going to be. And then when it showed up, it was actually Alter Ego on this uh, weird sort of cartridge because they had their own mold made that doesn't quite fit in a front loader, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, it's just a little too long, so you got to put it in like a top loader. But A little too long, that's what she said. Well, <laughs> well she probably never said that. No. Um, so <laughs> oh, wait, I had more points with that. Oh, okay. I shouldn't just launch into sexual innuendos? Well, no, you you can. Um, <laughs> and I will. So it's kind of interesting in that a game that's freely available and has been put out there for people to download is being sort of reproed by other homebrewers and sort of released, you know, officially, but it's still unofficial. So the game's never really had an official release. You can pick up this cart, but you can also... There's plenty of repro makers out there that will also put it onto a cart for you and sell it to you with, you know, a label and whatnot. Didn't uh, didn't Shiru include a label in his zip file? Yeah. You know, with the ROM? Yeah, the label's there, everything, so you can make your own copy. People weren't really supposed to um, repro it and sell it because the music was done by QLore Oh, and the game itself was done by, by Dennis Grashev, and so right. those weren't really his to give away, but it's it's kind of sold all over the internet. I mean, you go to eBay right now, you can find copies coming out of China. Yep, that's how it goes. Yep. Um, but there was never, there's never been an official release to compete with that, so you're not really not supporting somebody by getting somebody else to make you one. Yeah, so it's an awesome game. Check it out. Yeah, so what's been going on with you, Kevin? Well, Bo, let me tell you what's been going on with me. I'm wildly curious because you keep telling me you've been programming all day and then you tell me nothing else. Well, I, you clearly know what I'm programming. You're hanging around in chat with me. I think I know, but I okay, don't well, really know. I, uh, you know, I, I work on my own things now and again, but I also try to make myself available to friends who want to, you know, put out projects for good causes. Oh, that project. Um, yeah, so our good friend... Kevin Hirschberger. He shares a first name with me, so right away he's okay in my book. Um, he puts out uh, a Halloween cartridge every year. This is going to be the third year. Um, and he approached me this year and said, Hey, Kev, 
that's what he calls me. No, he doesn't call me that. Uh, but he basically said, Hey man, like, can we take the incident and sort of, you know, change the graphics and sort of repurpose it to use in our, in my annual, you know, Halloween cartridge. And I said, you know what? That sounds awesome. So I got with some of my very good friends, uh, one of which is here with me today, Mr. Bo. Uh, he redid uh, the graphics for me to make them Halloween themed. I got with uh, Tim, uh, who did Tailgate Party, to design some new levels. Because who doesn't love new box-pushing puzzle levels? Uh, and it's been so much fun. Um, and then I did uh, the music. I did some new music and... Uh, just sort of reprogrammed this a little bit, and uh, I think we came up with a pretty good little cartridge. Yeah, I was sort of impressed with how it came together. I know I sort of drug my feet on actually finishing my parts, but hey, it's all there now. Yeah, well, I mean, you didn't really drag your feet. I mean, I only started programming it, you know, a week or so ago, so it's not like uh, you made me wait months or anything oh, that is a plus. um but you did a great job uh tim did a great job i mean i, I wish that he could just send me 120 levels already in a rom for me to play because playing new levels is like my favorite thing and i fell in love with it all over again so um definitely keep an eye out he usually does does he usually do those through nintendo age uh the past couple of years i think he's done some auction copies yeah or if you happen to live in the fort wayne area and know certain people and go to a random halloween party <laughs> i know he sold some copies at a halloween party last year yeah so definitely keep your eye out um the levels are really good the music's good uh the graphics are great and we actually did some stuff in this that we didn't even do uh, in the incident as far as some, you know, background animations in the wind zones. Um, and I think the fonts are really cool. So overall it just has a cool feel. So definitely keep an eye out. It's going to be fun. What are you, what have you been doing, Bo? Uh, well, I guess I sort of forgot that I was doing the graphics on that one. I <laughs> just, that's like my, <laughs> yeah. What have you been working on that? I've also been working on. That's my pre morning where I'm just like drinking coffee and doing something and not really thinking yet. Um, yeah. My actual work for the last uh, month or two has been trying to finish up the stuff for Spookatron, which is the game that I'm releasing in the next, hopefully, month. Just trying to, you know, the game has mostly been done since February, so it's just, I'm just trying to figure out boxes now, and I've got it most of the way done, thanks to Kevin and our friend Aaron. Yeah, when we've talked in the past about, you know, a DIY option, uh, as opposed to just getting them printed and, and shipped to you because, you know, it's one, it's cooler being able to do it yourself. Two, it's probably less expensive. But uh, there are some uh, some headaches that you've run into, and they've been really interesting to, to see you overcome. Yeah, I can tell you which printer company I hate with a passion. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh man, I, f I felt so bad for you that uh, I, w I didn't want to say that day, but you know that week. <laughs> yeah, their initials rhyme with Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give it that. Uh, but you've got it. Uh, you've got it figured out. And I saw a box that you made today, and it looks fantastic. Yeah, and I just got to roll out like eighty more and do another box style and tweak the game just a final bit. And yeah, but it's while while at the same time putting together these Halloween cartridges for Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to do it. When it rains, things. it pours. Uh, you know, fall is one of my favorite holidays, and I sort of unwisely made the decision to also release a game 
during fall, so it's not a break in any way. But it's good though. It's good. Yeah, it's coming together. I'm I'm happy with it. There'll be some Kickstarter updates uh, if you've been following the project on there. Either, well, they'll probably have been posted before that this goes live. But uh, check those out if you want to see what I've been working on. And it's it's a labor of love for sure. So we have a write-in question. Oh, we do. That's right. By one of my very good friends, Alex Goulet. He's been very sort of motivational to me to to keep me inspired to finish some of my projects. But uh, he wrote in um, because in the last episode when we interviewed our good friend Paul, he uh, joked about you know getting sued by Nintendo. Uh, you know when he was trying to put together the Homebrew World Championship. Do homebrewers typically do anything to protect their intellectual properties? Do they file trademarks? Do they just hope no one steals it? Like, what, uh, one, what do you know that homebrewers have done in the past? And two, what do you intend to do uh, to sort of protect yourself? It's kind of an interesting question because, you know, the market is so small for homebrew things. Most of these, you know, really don't take off too much. And do you want to go to all the legal trouble and hassle? to protect something that probably nobody's going to steal in the first place. They're good questions. They are. In the past, there have been some people who have who have trademarked their IPs or, or gone to extra lengths in that manner. There is, you know, there's always... It's not so much the hope that nobody steals it. It's the fact that there's a very real goodwill in the community people don't want to see other people get ripped off from from the hours of hard work that they put into things if you want to see more games having your game stolen isn't probably going to help that at all yeah and i think that there is a really there's a really sort of camaraderie between all of us to where if we saw someone you know stealing someone's you know ideas or or characters or whatever like I think there would be a huge uproar and that person would not have it easy from then, you know, from then on out. So I think that, uh, the honor system and, and just sort of, you know, having just a, a moral compass of, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Um, you know, I, I've been a little bit flippant about using other people's intellectual properties in the past, but I would not even dare for a second mess with anyone else's in the community or, or, you know, or anyone else that, that did a homebrew for another system. I mean, I know the kind of work uh, and energy and, and passion that goes into it. And just to take that and, uh, and ruin it. I mean, it, it would be awful. I, I, I would never even consider it. And I hope that no one else would either. Well, and there have been, there's been, you know, forum bannings and sort of blackballings of certain people in the Atari community and the, the NES community. And if you're only going to hit a market of a few hundred people and, you know, 90% of those people know not to buy from you because you're just a complete jerk and not trustworthy in any way, like, it really almost puts yourself out of business pretty quick. Yeah, and I think um, word of mouth travels really quick. Um, if, if you're known for, you know, charging excessive shipping or poor <laughs> communication or, you know, just anything, it, it, it sort of gets around pretty quick. Uh, and you can definitely make things harder on yourself um, by just not doing, I don't want to say doing things the right way, but but maybe not doing things the right way. <laughs> well, and the community does police itself pretty, pretty well. Uh, you know, if, if you see, I remember I saw somebody bootlegging Battle Kid on eBay. And so I posted about it on the forum and within, you know, 
30 minutes it was taken down because so many people had complained about, you know, this is an illegal listing. And it's mm-hmm. that type of thing that that protects people is, you know, the goodwill of the community. Yeah, we care about the games and we care about the people making the games. Um, and we don't want to do anything to jeopardize the future of this sort of, you know, hobby. So uh, if we can send some nasty grams to <laughs> to get some people to to stop doing stupid things, uh, we definitely will. Yeah. So uh, what's been going on lately? What What kind of stuff in the community is happening right now? Uh, one of the biggest things has been in the last just like week has been the release of this little demo game called Indivisible. Yes. Which you have played and I have not had a chance to because I've been so busy making boxes and drawing graphics. Yeah. When I, when I first saw it, I didn't quite understand what it was because it said it was a D make demo of a game. And I was like, is it a demake? Is it a demo? Like, what the heck are they talking about? But I guess there was a demo that was released on PS4 of this game called Indivisible, um, and the person that demade this port, I guess, ported the actual demo. So it's still a demo, um, but it is the full demo. So uh, it's just it's one. I guess it's one level or one world, but the graphics are outstanding. Everything just feels polished like a licensed game. I mean, it's, it's all there, the music, the gameplay, there's a pretty awesome boss battle at the end. Uh, and he actually made it to where it keeps, uh, a time of how long it takes you to get through it. So you can do sort of a, a time trial to beat your times, or you can explore the world and pick up all the items. There's different ways to go about it, but the, the game itself is really, really good. And what it's a platformer, right? Yes, I'm sorry that I did not specify. Um, yeah, it's a platformer. I'm trying to think what I can compare it to. It's not like a Mario platformer. There's, it's. I guess you can think of like Ninja Gaiden, the way you're sort of jumping off walls to get to higher platforms. It's sort of like that, but the graphics are way better. Um, and I would say it's a better game than Ninja Gaiden. So oh, if, if you like that game, I think it would be up your alley for sure. Yeah, and uh, Kasumi, the guy who made it, has stated that he's probably not going to do the full thing and the game will not be put onto carts since it's somebody else's uh, intellectual property, but that he has been working on sort of his own projects. I'm really excited to see what that is going to be. Yeah, it's always really exciting when, when there's a programmer that I know nothing about that sort of comes out of nowhere and just releases something that is far and above anything that I can do because the more quality releases that are going to be coming out. I mean, I just, I just get really excited to, to, for the potential of the future to know, you know, in 10 years, what kind of stuff are we going to be playing? I mean, I, it's going to be incredible. I'm really excited to be part of this. Well, I think he's pretty active on Nest Dev. Uh, <laughs> well, that's why I don't know. Yeah, he's a big deal over there. I, th- I think that place scares me. Yeah, I know it does. <laughs> In other news, we Eskimo Bob has finally sort of been shipped. I think it's shipping like right now. Yeah, so if you didn't get in on the Kickstarter for Eskimo Bob uh, and you want to pick up a copy, they are shipping. So wh- where can you go to get a copy of that? Do you know offhand? Uh, I'm going to guess EskimoBob.com, but that might be a porno right. site, so you never know. <laughs> oh, I hope it is. I'm checking right I now. I still remember in college when I went to, to Craigslist, um, which was definitely male porn, uh, you had to... You need to go to craigslist.org. <laughs> yep, eskimobob.com. 
you can click on the very first link. Yeah, and and it's exciting for Kickstarter backers because we've only had to wait like five months to get a fully complete game. Yeah, that's a pretty quick turnaround compared to some of the other guys that have done uh, NES Kickstarter stuff. That is pretty much the fastest. He's set the record for fastest on that already. So that's awesome. Yeah, and I think that's when I... I've talked in the past and maybe not on the podcast, but I've, I've talked about how, when I get ready to release isolation, um, I'm going to go the Kickstarter route and I've wanted to wait until the game is 99% done because I taking people's money and making them wait years for a finished product is, it's just unacceptable in my opinion. That that hurts, Kevin. Well, you haven't made people wait years, have you? Okay. Then you're, you're off the hook. Longer than Tomas with Eskimo Bob. It's well, hard to beat I mean, that record. He's setting yeah. the standard, man. Yeah. <laughs> Back a few episodes, we talked about the Nestev competition and how that was happening, is happening right now with the deadline um, at the end of the year, beginning of next year. So we are here with Brad Bateman, who has done a lot of things in the homebrew community over the years. He's done a, he's done a, quite a bit of uh, beta testing. He's done some programming. And he is also he did the background graphics for Leisure Suit Larry. Oh shoot, that's right. Yeah, he did graphics, and uh, yeah, he's just kind of always sort of there around doing stuff. Uh, but he is probably most known for uh, helping to organize the Nestev uh, competition that's held, you know, every now I think it's held every year or every other year. Um, so, um, Brad, what is sort of your role, I guess, in everything? More specifically than what I know. (laughs) Yeah, well, basically it started in 2010 and the whole idea of the competition seemed like nobody really wanted to organize it or take the reins and stuff. So, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of time for programming, but, you know, I could help out a little bit. So by 2011, we started the competition and uh, yeah, so it's supposed to be an annual competition, like you said, but... So far, it's been 2011, 2014, 2016, and now we're actually on track for 2017. And yeah, so it's kind of exciting. The first time it's actually going to be an annual competition like it was supposed to be originally. What is the competition? Um, Basically, you're programming games for the NES. Um, Just your basic NROM games. Um, We haven't really gone too much into that, but basically more simple games. Um, The idea was to get people to come and actually finish these projects that they've been posting. You know, I know in podcasts previously, we've mentioned uh, Kevin's folder full of games. You know, I think (laughs) that's, that's a common, common thread between programmers in the Nintendo programming community. We all have these little projects that we'd started. And the whole idea was complete something like, we're tired of seeing spoilers. We want to actually see something. And uh, yeah, I think we've been fairly successful. So that was, if it started back in 2010, that would have been before a lot of these projects were actually being finished and released, uh, whether ROM distribution or, or physical. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So did the Nestev competition, is it affiliated with, with Nestev, the website? Um, Not, I wouldn't say it's officially affiliated i mean we try and keep it you know open to everybody um but i can understand why people would see it as the nestev competition because you know most of the people that work on it that's where they originated and most of the entries do come from 
the NestDev community um, as opposed to Nintendo Age or elsewhere. But I mean, there has been people that haven't even been part of either communities that found the competition and, you know, posted stuff and they did very well. Typically, there are different categories, right, for the entries? Yeah, yeah. Originally, we had the two categories, just like the basic competition and then like a free-for-all where you could enter anything, you know. The the whole idea was we wanted to make a multi-cart of the, of the entries. So it's fairly simple um, hardware-wise with uh, simple games to have multiple games on one cartridge. But as soon as you start including different mappers, um, it gets a lot more complicated. What's the uh, what's the turnout usually like? Do you usually get a lot of entries? Um, well, I was looking back in the first year, we had um, five entries in the main category and four in the free-for-all category. And the second year, we had seven and three. And last year, we had a huge turnout with a bunch of awesome results with uh, 18 and two. So yeah, if you guys haven't checked out all the uh, the entries yet, they're all free to download. Um, the multi-cart for 2016 is still in progress, um, but you will be seeing that probably, uh, hopefully within the next month or so. I'm not sure what those timelines are like right now. One of the things that I've always admired about the Nestev uh, competition and the cart release that goes with it is that all the books are open on the website. You can see the breakdown of cost of carts, shells, where the money goes, and all of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all volunteer. I know Paul at Infinite nes lives like he does all the work he doesn't charge a cent for anything other than you know what his costs are so i mean it's a huge huge time like a labor of love for all of us you know there's a lot of work that goes into tweaking the entries to get them to go onto the cartridge and uh damien or teples teples he does the the work on that and he designed the mapper and paul made the hardware and yeah it's been it's been a a lot of progress over the years and I think we're finally getting things ironed out. Yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to stick on schedule with every year, you know, getting new games. When you guys have had headliners before uh with I know Volume Action 53 Volume 1, the streamers game was sort of like out there as the big one on it, correct? Yeah, so basically, I mean, the first year we only had 5 entries and you know four extra entries so we kind of put a call out to you know anybody just to get some extra content on the cartridge we had the streamers on there which was based off like a a flash game which was based off of um the horrible action 52 game but yeah the action 53 was just kind of temple's idea for uh was it his idea to name it action 53 yeah yeah it's i think it's pretty much all his it's his it's his baby I'd I'd say um he's just he has this idea of what what he wants to do basically have the action 53 volume 1 volume 2 volume 3 and then do uh, a full cartridge with you know all of all of the different um competitions combined so oh wow cool and you guys do cash prizes with uh, the competition correct yeah, yeah. So any any cash that is made from the um the sale of the cartridges goes straight back into costs and um prize money for the uh, competitions. So the first year I know that um there's a few NES dev guys that donated some money for that and basically that's what we did. Um 
And since then, we've just been cash prizes from profits from the uh, sale of the cartridge. So first place is uh, $512, second place $256, $128, (laughs) (laughs) That's clever. I do enjoy that. Hexadecimal math. Yeah, we were just we got a little bit a uh, little bit nerdy with that there, so well, I enjoy nice to, it. Nice to have uh, fun. Yep. When I was looking over the list. It was like, yep, okay, I get it now. <laughs> but, uh, is there an eight dollar prize though? That's what that's what I really want to know. Or sixteen dollar <laughs> prize? No, no, there isn't. Um, but I guess I should mention that everyone who does um, submit an entry, unless it's you know, not worthy <laughs> i should say <laughs> you ordered uh, that, that very well it's it's all part of the rules um it, at the judge's discretion um they will receive a cartridge as well as part of their um oh that's cool yeah whether they they placed or not they will get it you know just for putting themselves out there and showing the world what you know all these projects like that was the whole thing we just want people to go out there we want to grow the community and we wanted to um see some finished projects because everyone is posting cool screenshots and little tech demos and you know we just some people just need the little extra push to get something finished speaking of which i have a a game here that i'm always curious if it's if it's gonna you know if this this type of competition is gonna help finish it the description reads you are henry an adventurous young cricket with a strange (laughs) habit getting into trouble this episode, Henry hopped his way down too many wrong turns and into a deep hole with all sorts of trouble. You will feel right at home with this platformer's control scheme, but this time at a much smaller scale. Navigate your way through a maze of 27 rooms and meet friends and foes throughout. Challenge your skill and perseverance with many goals and achievements. The clock is ticking. Will you defeat the evil insect overlord, or will you remain at the bottom of the leaderboards? That sounds familiar. That to me sounds like an amazing game that needs to be finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely needs to be finished. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know or don't have one of Kevin's wonderful calendars, that was uh, that was one of my submissions. And yeah, it's a game that I've been working on for a while, and just you know, it's one of those folders. But but we'll see. I mean, <laughs> oh my goodness, it looks so good. You know, and. You know, if I had time to work on it a little bit more, then it would. It looks great in my mind. You know, my my screenshots and, and my my little demos they they look okay. But there's definitely a lot of work to be done. Um, Finishing any game, it's a lot of work. So mm-hmm. well, that's why this competition exists. Crap, oh, anybody could give me mountains of crap for stuff that's not finished. <laughs> so <laughs> I just really like when I was flipping through the calendar that first year. I just looked at it and was like, man, I really want to see this game be done. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting... I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into the whole idea behind the game or not, but... Yeah, sure. I would absolutely love if you would, yes. Yeah, basically, um, it's the kind of game where you can try and finish it as quickly as you want or, you know, or try and be a completionist. Like, that's why there's all these achievements. So you can go straight to the boss, which may be only four rooms away, and try and beat him. Or you can master every single room and, uh, you know, get all the power-ups and, and that kind of thing. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. I'm excited to see whenever you get around to finishing it. I'm a fan of achievements. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Where can they go to find out more information about it? 
more information, you can go over to the uh, NestDev Compo website. It's uh, nestdevcompo.nintendoage.com, and you can click on the 2017 under the NES competitions and view the rules and guidelines there. Or uh, there's also a thread on Nintendo Age and NestDev. Yeah, there's probably more information over at NESDev if you want to go check that out. There's a complete subforum for 2017 if you have questions or if you want to start a build thread, um, show people what you're doing, getting some testers or whatever, then you can head on over there. And there's still plenty of time to enter. The deadline is January 31st? February January 31st. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're a little bit loose with the deadline. Yeah, just as long as it's in around there, you know, we'll we'll accept it. And as for submissions and stuff, how to do it, we haven't ironed that out quite yet. Um, <laughs> it's 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 difficult to figure out the best way to do things. You know, the judging itself is probably the hardest thing. You know, with four or five entries, it was okay, but eighteen, you know, it can be a little grueling getting it all done. So we're still looking at uh, the best way to do that for 2017. Have you thought about making a music competition? Um, we have mentioned a few times on the forums if they'd be interested in doing a music competition and um, like having a jukebox as part of the cartridge yeah. um, and just kind of expanding expanding it to other communities. That'd be cool, though, to get like a a compilation music cartridge. Yeah, and I figured, you know, it wouldn't be too much to add it to the cartridge because essentially NSFs are just, you know, NROM games and you could probably uh, compress them quite a bit. Yeah, and I th- I think it would be a lot more, and it'd be easier to, to submit a song than to actually start a project and finish a project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But again, that that just adds to the uh, the judging <laughs> problem. <laughs> I always have big plans every year to enter it, and I just never somehow can finish something in time. Deadline comes quick. It really does. Oh, so with the judging, I mean, this past year, you guys had, like, some AAA titles in there. Yeah, and actually, one of the the notable ones from the first year was Super Bat Puncher. So I think that actually got a lot of exposure to the competition at the beginning. Oh, was that submitted? That was submitted as in the free-for-all category. Oh, interesting. I don't remember seeing that on there. Yeah, yeah. So I think that brought a lot of attention to it. And then from there, it's just gotten bigger and bigger. But yeah, like Twin Dragons finished first in 2016, and that's getting its own release. And Nebs and Debs, I think that's getting its own release. And uh, I know the Mojon Twins, they have a, a few that they submitted, and I think they're doing a compilation cartridge that's getting its own standalone release as well. So, Big names. Big names. And then a bunch of other ones that are just first-timers and trying out stuff, and it's, it's great to see. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, chatting with us, and, and if you're... Uh, at all interested in being a part of the nest dev competition it's a great way to enter from big to small games anything in between uh, so it's a good way to get started so thanks brad yeah and thanks for having me on thank you all right guys well uh as always if you have any questions that you want to write into us the email address is nesassemblyline at gmail.com ask any question to your heart's content we will 
answer it on a future episode. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find Bo at Solgoose. I am at a ton of glaciers. Uh, you can follow us on there or Facebook or basically wherever you want. We're going to be there uh, and we'd love to hear from you. All right. So we're going to close this episode with a song that Kulor wrote. Um, you can find it on his website, kulor.arnoldasher.com. But the song that I want to play is called Cruisin' My 95 Pimp Mobile. Can't argue with a name like that. Bo, tell me how awesome it is. It's awesome, Kevin. Okay, good. All right, so thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next time. October's coming up, and that's going to be an exciting month for the assembly line, I'll tell you that. Yes, I'm excited. All right, guys, thanks for hanging out. We'll see you next time.